Once again, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? And as always, we'd like to welcome the new folks. It's good to see you. If it's your first time, we uh, just want to let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel on, Cal uh, uh, on Sundays in uh, Calvary Chapel here. And um, right now we find ourselves in chapter 15. And at this point in John's Gospel, we are roughly, well, less than 12 hours from the cross. And uh, Jesus is using the little time that he has left with his disciples to uh, drive home to their hearts different things, final lessons about ministry primarily, as they would soon be taking over for him, as in a few hours he'd be crucified, three days later he would rise from the dead, and 40 days after that he would return to his father, and they would be taking over the ministry he had begun on the earth. So these were important lessons that he wanted to reinforce to them. One of them, he wants to drive home to their hearts, to their hearts was that um, he wanted them to know that as they go out into the world preaching the gospel, that many people would not welcome their ministry. In fact, they would run into a world full of hatred and hostility against God and the people of God. And uh, so they needed to be prepared for that as they preached the gospel to all nations as he had commissioned them to do. Now, last time in our study, we finished our outline covering verses 18 to 25, but this morning I'd like to just revisit part of that text and elaborate a little more on the words of Jesus to his disciples found in verses 19 and 20. So let's read those verses. Where Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, guys, these words of Jesus remind me very much of what he had said earlier in his ministry. And I'd like you to turn to Matthew 10, because I would like to... Um, Spend a little time there because in Matthew 10, the Lord kind of expands uh, what he said to, to finish. Let me just say this. What Jesus spoke the, uh, the night before his crucifixion to his disciples was not the first time by any means that he was uh, sharing these things. He's touching on the most important topics that he had taught on throughout the course of his three and a half year ministry. So if you go back to Matthew 10, this is one of the places where he uh, brings up this whole subject that we're studying now in John 15. So let's read verses 24 and 5, where Jesus said, uh, this sounds very much like John 15, by the way, but he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher. And a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, basically Satan, how much more will they call those of his household? This antagonism, Jesus said, would lead to persecution. Now, they're going into a hostile world. He wants them to know that. He's uh, mentioning it one more time before the cross. But as we go back into Matthew 10 and other passages, but I'll just focus on this one 
He's talking about the antagonism that they would experience once they went out into the world. They've hated me, they're going to hate you also, and so on. And that this antagonism would lead to persecution against those who belong to him. But he admonished them, us, three times in Matthew 10, verses 26, 28, and 31, not to fear. Not to fear. Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, guys, this is one of the greatest tests of genuine faith Jesus ever gave to us. And that is, he was saying, look, you're my disciples. It's not going to be an easy ministry. It's a glorious work to serve God, but it's not going to be an easy life. Now, I want you to understand going in what you can expect. Jesus never sends us out without giving us a little taste of what we can experience. That's why he tells us later to count the cost. He's already laid out the cost. He's already told us what to expect. And this is no different here. And what he's telling these men is, um, anyone who claims to be one of my disciples, uh, are, are you willing to stand up for me? Are you willing to confess me to a world that's going to hate you and do everything in their power to silence you? Are you ready to go forward? Are you ready to be, you say you're one of my disciples, we can say anything. But what I want to know is, are you really ready to live the life of a disciple? Are you going to confess me before men? The word confess there in the Greek is a word that means to openly declare your allegiance to. Openly To openly de declare your allegiance to. Guys, to confess Jesus means more than just declaring his name with your lips. It also means to back up your words by living for him openly with your life. And the context in Matthew chapter 10, I'm thinking of verses 17 to 25, the context is in the face of persecution. Any one of us can profess Christ in church. We all agree with each other, right? It doesn't really, you know, take any courage to be around people who are like-minded and we're all talking about Jesus. Well, sure, we all agree with each other, right? It's when we go out into the world, this is the test of our faith. Are we really genuine disciples in that we are willing to openly confess the Lord Jesus, not just with our lips, but with our lives, even if it means persecution? One author gives a powerful example of this. Let me quote it to you. He said, and I quote, in his book, I Love Idi Amin, the author Festo Kemenjeri, a leading evangelical minister in Uganda, tells the, the history of persecution and martyrdom of Christians in that country. In 1885, three Christian boys ranging in age from 11 to 15 were forced to give their lives for Christ because they would not renounce their faith in him. The king was adamantly opposed to Christianity and ordered the boys' execution if they did not recant their faith. At the place of execution, the boys asked that the following message be given to the king. Here's what they said the king should hear from their mouths. 
Tell his majesty that he has put our bodies in the fire, but we won't be long in the fire. Soon we will be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask him to repent and change his mind, or he will land in a place of eternal fire. The author goes on. As they stood bound and awaiting death, they sang a song that soon became greatly loved by Christians in that country, a song they called the Martyr's Song. One verse testifies, Oh, that I had wings like, an, like the angels, I would fly away and be with Jesus. The youngest of the boys, named Yusufu, said, Please don't cut off my arms. I will not struggle in the fire that takes me to Jesus. Because of the boy's testimony that day, 40 adults trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And indirectly, countless more converts were won to the Lord over a period of many years. By 1887, a large number of other Christians were martyred, many of them inspired by the fearless, loving testimony of those three boys. None of those martyrs knew much theology or much about the Bible because most of them were illiterate and all of them were relatively new believers. But they had a deep love for Jesus that they refused to hide no matter what the cost. As is nearly always the case, those who died were replaced several fold by new converts who came to Christ because of their testimony, end quote. So guys, the point I believe the Lord was making when he said, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The point I believe the Lord was making is that the test of true saving faith, in other words, whether or not you're really born again, whether or not you're really a believer in Christ, is faithfulness all the way to the end, even if it means martyrdom, even if it means you are killed for your faith. Now, look, I do believe that a genuine Christian, if they do face martyrdom, at that moment, God will give them the grace to endure it. Didn't the Lord Jesus say, when they drag you before kings and magistrates, don't even think about what you're going to say beforehand? But wait until you stand before the king or magistrate. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak in that very moment. And I believe it go, that goes for the, the uh, grace and strength we would need to face death. In that moment, the Holy Spirit would give us the grace to go through it. And I believe this is a test of true faith true saving faith. A phony Christian won't even live for the Lord, let alone die for the Lord. I mean, if forced to make a choice whether to renounce Jesus or die, the phony Christian will deny him before men to save his own life. And again, Jesus said, that man or woman who refused to say they knew me uh, on the earth while, you know, standing before those that want to kill them, Jesus said, if anyone stands before men who are ready to kill them and does not profess me before them, but rather chooses to deny my name to, uh, to escape death himself, Jesus said, on the day of judgment, I will deny knowing them before my Father in heaven. And it's not because he knew them, but then they denied him that he's saying, I won't acknowledge you. He is saying that on the day you denied me on earth, it proved your faith wasn't genuine. And that day in heaven, on the day of judgment, I will deny knowing you because I never knew you, is the idea, right? 
Now, guys, that doesn't mean that a real Christian is not going to ever deny an opportunity to be a witness for Christ. And it doesn't mean that, you know, real Christians can't at one point deny or fail to confess their relationship with Jesus, and if they do, they're going to go to hell. It's not really what the Bible is saying at all. Um, even Peter, the great apostle Peter, denied the Lord three times, and yet he was eventually martyred for not renouncing his faith in Christ. Any of the disciples could have spared uh, a torturous death, first century Christians I'm talking about, if they had only renounced Christ. They didn't, and they all went to their deaths. Peter was one. Peter was one. I believe that what the Lord is saying here is that the outward confession of a person's mouth coupled with the, with the outward actions of their life is an indication of the genuine faith in their heart. Okay? Again, not that genuine Christians can't let fear get to them at times. Again, Peter denied his Lord three times. Um, where they deny the Lord in a given situation, other people can, other Christians can do that, and we, we have done it at times. I mean, I've done, you know, I, in, in, over the course of my Christian life, there are times I, I wanted to say something about the Lord to somebody, and I didn't. Um, and I really felt bad about that, and I asked God for forgiveness and, and for the grace not to ever do that again. And he does give the grace that. We, we've all been in that position where we had an opportunity to confess the Lord, but we backed away. We were afraid of what people would think or that we didn't have the right information. Not, not that we didn't have the right information about the cross, of course. we. But what if they ask me questions I can't answer? I'd just rather not get into it. We've all done that. But for a true Christian, the general pattern of their life will be to stand up for Jesus. The general pattern. Now, the Lord goes on to say that the kind of commitment to him that will bring conflict, or let me put it this way, that kind of commitment to him will bring conflict between the believer in Christ and every other person in their life for the most part. I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying when you really are committed to the Lord and, and you are, you know, in, in a loving way, sharing your faith and defending Jesus, standing up for the Lord, it's going to bring, that kind of commitment is going to bring conflict into your life from every other person close to you. I'm talking about family and friends. But let's talk about family for a minute, okay? Because Jesus does. When you have that kind of commitment to him, uh, it's going to cause division between you and those who are closest to you, starting with the members of your own family. Didn't Jesus' brothers turn on him? I mean, we know he had four brothers, and it says sisters, so he had more than, he had two or more. And the Bible says his half-brothers and maybe his sisters, they didn't believe in him when he was on the earth. And we know two of them got saved after his resurrection, Jude and James. They both wrote epistles. Those were the half-brothers of Christ. I'm hoping the other two brothers and all the sisters got saved too. But even his own family turned against him. He knew what he was talking about. Okay? He had lived it. And so he wants to drive this home to them. And so in, in verse 34 he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. 
Guys, of course, the sword he's talking about in this passage is for the most part an allegorical sword, an allegorical sword of conflict and division, which he now elaborates on in verses 35 and 6. He said, For I have come to set a, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household, his own family. Guys, the word against comes from a Greek word that means to cut in two. To cut in two. A word that denotes a complete and often permanent separation. It costs us sometimes greatly to follow the Lord. When a Jewish person becomes a Christian, their family disowns them to the point where they throw a funeral and pronounce him dead. If you're a Muslim, they want to take your life. I mean, the cost of true discipleship, and guys, you say, well, we were in John 15, now we're in Matthew 10. I'm not sure I understand. John 15 was really talking about discipleship and why the world would hate you because you belong to me. And the world is not going to hate somebody that even calls themselves a Christian but lives like the world. But if you call yourself a Christian and live like a Christian, if you're a true disciple of Christ, that's when the world is going to attack. It all belongs to, it's all the same idea taught at different times during his earthly ministry. That the cost of true discipleship will often drive a wedge between you and your closest friends, but especially between you and your family, separating them from you sometimes for the rest of your life. You all have had people, maybe even family, unfortunately, that since you've become a Christian, they have disowned you. And maybe that was 20 years ago. It's painful. It's not easy following Christ. But the alternative is we water things down to make, you know, our commitment to Jesus not so strong, not so bright. Author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, the only way a believer can escape this conflict is to deny Christ and compromise his witness, and this would be sin. Then the believer would be at war with God. We will be misunderstood and persecuted even by those who are the closest to us. Yet, we must not allow this to affect our witness. It is impossible that we suffer for Jesus' sake and for righteousness' sake, and not become, and, and it's, it's important, I should say, that we suffer for Jesus' sake and for righteousness' sake, and not because we ourselves are difficult to live with. There's a lot of Christians like that. He said... There is a difference between the offense of the cross, Galatians 5.11, and then being an offensive Christian, end quote. Guys, look, Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted when they do wrong or when they act obnoxious. He said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. There is a, a humorous uh, imaginary story. Maybe some of you have heard it. It's a humorous imaginary story written by an author named Joseph Bailey, uh, a story he called the Gospel Blimp. I think it illustrates this pretty well. 
Uh, one author explains, and he said, and I quote, the believers in an imaginary town conceive the idea of witnessing by means of a blimp, which is to fly over the town, trailing gospel signs and dropping tracts and leaflets called gospel bombs onto the townsfolk. It's a silly idea. No one is ever converted by it. But for a while, at least, the town is tolerant. Tolerance changes to hostility, however, when the promoters of the project add sound equipment to the blimp and begin bombarding their neighbors with gospel services broadcast from the air. At this point, according to Bailey, the persecution, quote-unquote, begins. That night, the sound equipment of the blimp is sabotaged. And the Christians, who are behind this whole project rejoice that they're being persecuted for righteousness sake isn't that glorious we're serving the lord and look at we're being persecuted for righteousness sake well it's not persecution that's that is mr bailey's point it is a provoked response to an unjustified invasion of privacy and similarly it is not persecution today when christians are snubbed for pushing tracks onto people who don't want them, or for intruding into the affairs, into their affairs when they are not invited, and so on. The only persecution that God recognizes as blessed is the kind that comes from living a righteous life, like Jesus lived, and for declaring the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. And guys, the author has put his finger on a problem that has plagued the Christian church for many years. Obnoxious Christians who think that pushing their faith onto the people of this world is righteous behavior. But that behavior has caused many unbelievers to hate us, listen, with a cause. Instead of what Jesus said should be the case, that living a righteous life in this fallen world as he lived, as he did, would cause the world to hate us without a cause, without us provoking them. You know, Peter reminded us that when the world hates you as a Christian, make sure it hates you because you're living a, a righteous life like Jesus. And not because you're living a, a, an obnoxious, in-your-face kind of a, a, a lifestyle. I know people that are very bold by nature. They like confrontation. Maybe you've run into some. There are people that thrive on conflict. They like it. And so any excuse to get in somebody's face... They're all for that. They thrive on it in a sense. And so now when they become Christians, they, they, they take that desire to you know, confront people and turn it into religious zeal, and they tell themselves that they're really serving God. How bold I am. God must really be pleased with me. I don't care who it is. I'll go right up to them, and I'll stick a track in their face, and I'll challenge them. You know, they love it. But... A lot of times it's not behavior that's being led by the Holy Spirit. It's really a work of the flesh that has God's face planted on it. Peter said, when you serve the Lord in our, our um, persecuted, he said, make sure it's not because you're being obnoxious. I'll read 1 Peter 3, verses 15 to 17. Peter said, worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, look, if somebody asks us, we'll be happy to talk to them, right? 
If somebody asks you about your Christian hope or faith, uh, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Might I add, to suffer for being obnoxious. All right? So look, the commitment, and this is what Jesus was driving home to his disciples' hearts the night before his crucifixion. He did this all the way through his ministry. The, what the, the uh, lesson he was driving home was that the commitment required to be a true disciple of his and the resulting consequences, listen, are not trivial. They're not trivial. And that's why Jesus admonished us first to count the cost. So a lot of folks rush into the Christian life without really counting the cost because it sounds like what they need. You know, I'm lonely and I'm, I'm unhappy. I need my friend. They received Jesus and I can't believe how it's, he's changed their life. I, I need that. I want to be happy. Uh, you know, and so on. Well, who doesn't want to be happy? But that's not necessarily the reason to come to Christ. There's no counting the cost in that, right? Uh, what did Jesus mean by counting the cost? Well, he's talking about, well, we'll talk about that more in a second, but the idea is there's, there's a cost involved. And if you're really going to follow him for the right reasons, it's not going to be, again, an easy life. There is a cost involved in becoming one of his disciples. But he goes on to say that if you decide to make that commitment to him, know this, it is absolute non-negotiable. You can't be a Christian on your terms. There's a lot of folks that try. They think they are Christians. But like Cain, approach God on his terms instead of doing it the way God said you needed to approach me. Like Abel obeyed and God accepted his offering. Cain did not. Cain was upset because Cain wanted to approach God on his terms. And God says to Cain and says to all of us, no one can approach me on your terms. You've got to approach me on my terms or you can't approach me at all. And that's the idea that, you know, if you're going to make a commitment to Christ, you've got to do it on his terms. We can't say we're Christians, but then we are still able to do all the other things that we want to do. I'm a Christian, but, you know, I live with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but we're Christians because we prayed the prayer. God knows our hearts. And, uh, and, and, and you know, he, I, we know he's accepted us the way we, we are. Well, no, he hasn't but you're trying to be a Christian on your terms. But this commitment is absolute and non-negotiable if you decide to make it. Verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Guys, what Jesus is saying here is that he has to be our first love. Now, the idea is supreme above all else. Not the only love in our life, but the supreme love. The kind of love that Jesus is referring to here isn't really feelings or emotion. Not, not emotional love. It is a commitment. It's a commitment. It's that agape love that we read about all the way through the New Testament. Now there are those who would read this statement by Jesus in Matthew 10.37 and they would call us a cult that is trying to divide and destroy families. Right? I mean, look at it. 
if you don't, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and son or daughter loves them more than me, not more worthy of me. Unbelievers would read that and have read that. And so, see, Christianity is a cult. Because this would, Jesus Christ teaches people to divide their, you know, divide from their families, and, and uh, families are divided, and so on. Listen, the reality is that when we love Jesus above every other relationship or any other thing in our life, when we love him with all our hearts supremely, and we are living the life of a true disciple, and what did Jesus say was the was the the uh, involved in being a true disciple? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, right? Follow him where? To the cross. What was the cross? It was his way of dying for others that we might be saved, right? Putting others above himself. Look, if you're a true disciple of Christ and you're really walking closely with Jesus, you're picking up your cross every day, you're denying yourself to put others first, primarily your husband or your wife or your kids, your family, you know? You're, you're living a life that is putting the people closest to you above yourself. Let me tell you something. You do that? You're going to be the best husband, the best father, the best mom, the best mother, excuse me, the best wife, the best, you know, you're going to be the best you can possibly be. A lot of folks don't realize that. That's what Jesus was talking about. And let, let me just say this. Yet there are times when our relationship with Jesus will divide rather than unify. But guys, that is not our fault. It is not something we want. It is just the reality of darkness wanting to separate itself from the light. You can read John 3. When your family turns against you and divides themselves from you, that's not something we want. Who wants that as a believer? But know this, sometimes it happens because it's the darkness wanting to separate itself from the light. And so, guys, our love for Jesus must supersede all other loves in our life, including, let me just say this, because Jesus brings it out, including and especially the love of self. This is what the Lord goes on to say in verses 38 and 9. He who does not take his cross and, excuse me, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What exactly did Jesus mean when he said this? What, what kind of death is he referring to? Well, I think the context is he's talking allegorically about dying to our rights, our comforts, our interests, our will, and our goals. It means to die to all our hopes and dreams, you know, everything that is of self. To die means to lay it all down, to give it all up, to let it all go. In other words, the Lord is giving us all a choice. He is saying, look, you can either give up your earthly life now to live, to serve, to suffer, and if need be, to die for my sake, or and, and spend eternity with me in, the, in heaven in the process, or... You can live for your life yourself now. God gives us a free will. And we can choose it either to serve Jesus right now, or we can use it to serve ourselves, right? You can live for yourself now if you want to. 
and to live for all your pleasures, your goals, your self-fulfillment, but in the process you will be separated from me for all eternity in hell. The choice is yours. Now personally, that wasn't a hard choice for me. I don't know about you guys. Probably not, right? We're all believers pretty much. I think we're all believers here. And when the Lord began to, you know, before I got saved, I was like any young guy, wanted to be wealthy and successful and had plans to start a, a, a business. And, uh, and, and then the Lord started tugging on my heart. And as he began to tug on my heart and open my eyes, and I began to see things for the first time. It really wasn't a hard decision for me to say, well, if I pursue a business, not that you can't be a Christian and own a business. I'm not saying that, but for me. Um, I can pursue wealth. I can pursue success. And if I achieve those things, how long can I really enjoy them on the earth, right? I mean, if, if I could be, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, or Jeff Bezos or somebody like that, multi-mega-billionaire, how long could you really enjoy that? Wealth, success, right? I mean, what, for another 50, 60, 70 years maybe? Let's say you could enjoy it for another 200 years before you died. I mean, 200 years on earth is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. I mean, for me, it was not a hard decision, but for a lot of people, they opt for the 50, 60, 70 years on earth where they, you know, rather have all kinds of opportunities for pleasure and things right now, but they're giving up eternity with Jesus. Now, Jesus added something later on in Matthew chapter 16 for all those who were contemplating choosing the latter. He said in Matthew 16, 26, and what do you, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Well, the logic is irrefutable. Your body is temporary. It's physical. It's going to wear out and die. Your soul's eternal. So are you going to indulge the body now for what? 50 years? For the next? Or are you going to make provisions by accepting Christ to spend eternity, your soul, in heaven with the Lord? It's not that hard a decision for me. Maybe it wasn't for many of you, but... For a lot of folks in the world, they make that bad choice every single day. Now look, let's broaden our scope. We were, we've been focusing primarily on, on John 15 and um, how the world would hate us as Jesus' disciples simply because we belong to him, right? When you go out into the world and you are representing me, he said the world's going to hate you. Well, why, Lord? What did I do to the world? They're going to hate you without a cause. Don't try to figure it out. Don't torture yourself with, why do they hate me? They're going to hate you. I'm just going to say it up front. But let's broaden our scope a little bit from the world just simply hating us because we belong to Jesus, you know, without a cause. And uh, let's include the suffering that we are going to endure for Christ in general because we are Christians. And, of course, it would include, you know, people persecuting us when we preach the gospel. That's true. But there's other forms of suffering that we endure as Christians when we are just serving the Lord. And uh, it's hard for a lot of people to comprehend even. But, but here, I'll tell you what. Turn to Romans 8 for just a minute. 
Because suffering for Christ is more than just going out and sharing the gospel. There are other ways we can suffer for the Lord. And, uh, but it's all connected. It's really all the same thing. So in Romans 8, the, I want you to start off with verse 17, at the middle of the verse, but at the context, Paul is saying that you know we are really children of God. How do we know we're really children of God? Well, verse 17, if indeed, if indeed we suffer with him. So we know we're really children of God if we suffer with him. That we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Guys, suffering for Jesus' sake is something very few Christians in America know much of anything about. Many Christians are troubled by the idea that God would even allow his children to suffer. Why would he do that? I don't get that. I thought he's a loving God. I thought he, I thought he loved me. I'm his child. Why would he let me suffer? Uh, maybe you've wrestled with that yourself. You know, how could they reason, how could a loving father allow his kids to suffer? Well, you know, C.S. Lewis, in writing on suffering, had some very insightful things to say about it. And I'm going to paraphrase this. It's a little hard to read because it's uh, the way he wrote it. But basically, C.S. Lewis said, look, God knows that the only happiness we'll ever really have in life is in him. Knowing him and serving him. Here's the problem. If he lets us have a very pleasant and blessed life where everything is just wonderful, blue skies and, and sunshine all the time, you know, none of us would pursue him to find happiness or purpose in life. Things are going too well, right? We don't tend to pursue God when things are going great. There's been more than one football pro who has been on top of the world making buku money uh, total unbeliever living like the world and, and so on and eventually blows his knee out ends his career and now he's looking for God at one point we said well that's cruel if God would allow that what's more cruel a little pain on earth that brings you to Christ so you have eternity with God in heaven or let God let you have an easy life on the earth for 50 or 60 years and you die and spend eternity in hell suffering what really is right David said, it was good for me to have been afflicted by God. I have learned to keep your commandments. It's okay, Lord, if you need to beat up on me a little bit. If the, if the bottom line is I walk with you and I get close to you, because that's the only life worth living. That's where the real happiness and fulfillment is. And this is what C.S. Lewis was saving, uh, saying, that, that we won't look for that kind of uh, a relationship with God as long as everything's going great. So God will take away things. He'll begin to pull back the blessings. He may even allow us to suffer something, okay? It might be a physical suffering we're suffering or the loss of a loved one or somebody very close to us. But, but it's all designed to bring us to Jesus because only in him is there happiness and true fulfillment. But we won't look for it without the suffering. And we will wrap ourselves in the things of the world which give the illusion that they have brought us happiness. But it's really an illusion, right? Didn't Paul the Apostle talk about the deceitfulness of riches? How that a lot of people think that to have enough money will make them really happy? Now, most folks never get to that point where they can say they've got enough money. That they can prove that point. 
So most people are pursuing wealth all the time, trying to make enough where they can finally achieve happiness in life. John Rockefeller used to work 18 hours a day. He was a multimillionaire in the, at the times years ago when a million bucks was something. One time a reporter asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, you're working 18 hours a day to make more and more money. He said, you know, how much, how much money's enough? Rockefeller famously said, just a little more. That's the deceitfulness of riches. I mean, I've got all these millions, but I'm not quite happy yet. Just a little more money and I'll achieve happiness. And that, that's the sad reality. Now, you talk to guys who have achieved a lot of money. Going back in the Bible, Solomon was the richest guy in the world at his t at, in his day. And, and, and read the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, here's a very wealthy guy who had everything in life that anyone could possibly have or own to bring them happiness. And he keeps repeating throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, everything in this life apart from God is emptiness and vanity. It doesn't satisfy. Yet he kept pursuing it for many years until he wised up and realized, hey, my dad was right. He told me when I was a young man and I took over the kingdom. Son, you pursue God with all your heart. If you pursue God, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. David wasn't a perfect man, but he knew one thing. All that matters in life is knowing God. All that matters. Knowing and serving God. Solomon finally figured it out. A lot of people never will. I pray for the uber-rich in our society. A lot of them are miserable. They got the yachts and they got the mansions. And they got all this, take exotic vacations and own buku houses all over the world and so on. You study their lives a little bit, they're not happy people. Now I'm going to use this to dovetail into this as we bring this to a close. I'm going to say some things, hear me out, before you want to throw something at me. Okay? Alright? Everything in life, apart from God, is emptiness and vanity. And that goes for the person in church who believes they have not forsaken God, but included God in their life, but their life is still spent pursuing wealth. You know, they walk out of church, they did their duty, I made God happy, I don't want God mad at me, I gotta sell some stuff to make money, you know, you know I gotta, you know, it's, so they, they come to church, but God really isn't the center. What does God have to do? He's got to take things away from us because he loves us to get us to realize the stuff we're clinging to doesn't make us happy. We need him, but we're not ready to come to him until he starts taking things away from us. I believe that is what the Lord is currently doing with America. A nation that has become an idol for many Christian, Christians. And by that I mean an object of worship. I think the Lord is prying America from our hands. To force us to cling to the kingdom of God. Now please don't misunderstand me. I love this country. I absolutely love America, and I know I speak for all Christians living in America, that we are thankful for the country God has given us to live in. 
But listen, guys, America is not a Christian nation. It never was. It was founded on Christian principles. Many of our founding fathers were devout believers. But they didn't found a theocracy. They founded a constitutional republic. It was never designed to be a theocracy where God was overall in every thing, decision we made. God was right there. We said, Lord, what do you want to do? No, they went to the Bible, many of them in those early days, yes. And they did formulate laws and make decisions based on what God said in his word. But God was technically not in charge of America. And with that in mind, that America was really never a Christian nation, then what is America? It's the world. It has a lot of wonderful people in it. We have some good leaders still. But America, guys, is the world. And James tells us, any believer that wants to be a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. Unfortunately, many Christians have more love and loyalty to the country of America in their hearts than they do for the kingdom of God. Now, let me qualify that statement by saying the two, a love of country and a love of God, are not mutually exclusive. We can love both and be good citizens of both. Didn't Jesus teach us this very thing when he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God? What Jesus was teaching us uh, as his people is that it's possible to be citizens of two kingdoms. It's po we see people that have dual citizenship, you know, in this country. There are citizens of America, and they're also citizens of Great Britain or Canada or something else, right? You can have a dual citizenship. Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms. In this room, we are citizens of America, but as Christians, we are also citizens of heaven. Now, you can be citizens of two kingdoms, but listen to me. You can only love one of those kingdoms supremely. Supremely. And this is exactly what Paul the Apostle affirmed when he said in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship as Christians is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for an earthly kingdom to be established. In the meantime, we live in this earthly kingdom. Jesus is coming to bring a heavenly kingdom to the earth. Right now we live in an earthly kingdom. But Paul says our citizenship, and it's interesting, the Greek word he uses for citizenship is a word we get our word politics from. Our politics as Christians are in heaven. People ask me, are you a Republican or a Democrat or independent? I'm a monarchist. That's the answer I give. I'm a monarchist. Because if you're going to talk about my politics... My politics are in heaven. I'm looking for Jesus to come back and fix this mess. Because he's the only one who can do it. Right? But, again, to balance, Peter said, at a time when Caesar Nero was this out-of-control lunatic persecuting Christians, Peter said, fear God, honor the king. So, there is a balance, right? Right? As Christians, we fear the Lord. We reverence him. And we honor earthly leaders because he's told us to do that. 
It means that we should learn to have a balance between the earthly kingdom we live in on earth and the heavenly, the, the heavenly kingdom we were born into in heaven. This balance, guys, used to be a lot easier to walk than it is today. You know? As Americans, I'm talking about. This balance of, of, of you know, being, you know, having a good place in your heart for America and the Bible used to be a lot easier balance to walk than it is today. For many years in our country's existence, our nation's principles and biblical principles paralleled one another, right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember a time when, you know, God and country were not that far apart. They were kind of flip sides of the same coin. Again, for many years in our country's existence, our nation's principles, values, and, and biblical principles, values, paralleled each other. And this caused many Christians to conflate the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America. In other words, they believed that the two were almost interchangeable. To the point that many believed to be an American was tantamount to being a Christian, and vice versa. However, in the last generation or two, that has changed. To the point that many Americans, excuse me, that has changed to the point that many of America's values now run contrary to God's values. The result has been that many of our fellow Americans now hate us and are beginning to turn against us like never before. This has caused many professing Christians to be, what I'll, what I'll say is, caught on the horns of a dilemma. This has caused now is, is we as a nation have moved farther and farther away from God in the Bible. It has caused many professing Christians to be caught on the horns of a dilemma. And by that I mean they are being forced to choose what kingdom they really are loyal to. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of America? Those of us who are deciding to be loyal, uh, to declare our loyalty to the kingdom of God and are standing up for Jesus, well, we're starting to see suffering and persecution against us by our fellow Americans like never before. And I don't think it's going to get better before it gets worse. However, the Bible reminds us in Romans 8, in other places, but Romans 8, 17 and 18, that suffering and glory go together in the Christian life. Suffering and glory go together. They are married to one another. Or to put it in another way, the suffering in this life, excuse me, the sufferings in this life are the birth pangs of glory in the next life. Now, Paul the Apostle put this in perspective. Turn quickly to 2 Corinthians 4 and we'll close. Second Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18 are not really quoted in a lot of churches anymore today. Because a lot of churches don't want their people to even focus on suffering. Their message is always very positive, and suffering is negative. And so you have a lot of pastors that will not even quote passages like this, Romans 8, either. Because, you know, in their minds, that suffering's of the devil. We're not going to talk about the devil. We're going to only focus on the positives, right? 
But here's what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. He said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, no matter how much we suffer in this earth, life here is only but a moment compared to eternity. But our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen on earth, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, invisible spiritual things, they are eternal, right? But many Christians, if they do read those verses, they don't really look at it that way. This is not where they're coming from. They're not thinking about suffering on earth, which is bringing, going to bring more glory in heaven. No. They want joy right now without tribulation. They want heavenly rewards without earthly suffering. In short, they want Resurrection Sunday without Crucifixion Friday. Before the glory comes the cross. Before the resurrection life comes death in this life. I mean, guys, if Christianity is all about following Jesus, then realize that as Jesus was the ultimate suffering servant, if we're following him, then so must we suffer if we're going to follow in his footsteps. I'd like to take one more week, just one more, to talk about suffering in the Christian life. Because it's something Jesus felt so strongly about. He brought up the night before the cross. And if you don't understand well, why does God allow suffering how can he a loving God allow his kids to suffer if you don't understand why we've touched on it a little bit you're never going to be able to serve Jesus in this world I'd like to take one more week to talk about suffering in the Christian life and let me set up next week's study by saying that suffering in the Christian life can take different forms number one there is suffering that is the result of sin but we're not going to go there you know that you know, you know what that's all about, but I'm not going to bring that up next week. But number two, there is suffering that we endure for Jesus' sake. Well, that's John 15, 18 to 25. We've been looking at that. Number three, there is suffering that comes because we live in a fallen, violent world. Well, that's all around us now. And number four, there is suffering because we live in bodies that are a product of the fall, that wear out, that grow old, that get sick. And will eventually die. There's a lot of Christians who suffer physically before they eventually die. And then there are Christians who lose loved ones and suffer afterward. One of our dear saints is still suffering greatly over the death of somebody in the church that she was very close to. She can't even talk about it without breaking down. That was over a month ago. Not that the pain is going to evaporate in even a month or so. But she's heartbroken. She's devastated. And, and, and I think most, most of you know who she is, so pray for her. But we all suffer for various reasons. But even though, and I'm done, even though suffering is a fact of the Christian life, it's talked about from one end of the Bible to the other, understand most Christians in our country at least know little, if anything, about suffering. Why is that? Because in our country, in America, it really doesn't cost us much, if anything, to believe in Jesus. Now, if you were living in Uganda or Afghanistan or some other Muslim nation, 
Yeah, it would cost you a great deal to become a follower of Christ. There's definitely going to be costs involved. But for Americans, no. You know, I mean, you know, we people come down the aisle, come to Christ. He'll take care of all your problems. You'll be wealthy. You'll be healthy. He'll give you the best business in town, the biggest house. You'll drive the fanciest car. Come down, accept Jesus. And they walk forward, and they have no idea what's good. They have no clue what the Christian life is really all about because they've interjected themselves right into the center of it and not Jesus and the cross. So, guys, come on back next week now that I've outlined this very uplifting message so that you come back and we can all suffer together. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, Lord, even though you haven't promised us freedom, from suffering, pain, adversity, or persecution as your people. Thank you, Lord, that you promised to be with us every step of the way. And that anything we suffer on this earth for Jesus' sake, well, is going to yield a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory someday in heaven. So, Lord, give us grace to not focus on what is seen, but to keep our eyes on what is unseen. This world is rapidly passing away. But, Lord, your kingdom is coming, and that's eternal. Give us grace to live for your kingdom. And we pray for America. We ask you, Lord, to bring revival and a great awakening to this land. We love our country. Thank you. But, Lord, America is not to be an object of worship. Your main priority is not to fix America and bring America back to its former glory. Your main goal here if need be, is to pry America away from the fingers of your people that we would stop worshiping it and longing for the good old days and to get our lives right with you that we would go into this fallen world as America seems to be crumbling and try to rescue as many people as possible who are now terrified of the future. They don't know what the future is going to bring. Everything seems to be crumbling. Well, Lord, now they're at a point when they're going to be more open to you and to Jesus than ever before. Give us grace to utilize this time, this opportunity, that you would use us to bring many to Christ. And we just thank you now, Lord. We ask you to bless next week's study, that we can kind of wrap this up, but that you would bless it, Lord, and uh, just bring it forth in the power of your spirit. We just thank you now, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.